Welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome to guests, uh, members. It's great to have you here at CBC. I invite you to turn in God's Word to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. <clears throat> Pardon me. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Let's hear God's word together. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are the source of our life that our lives are lived before you in your presence, and that you are our destination. Father, we confess that at every point we are utterly dependent upon you and can accomplish nothing in our own strength. Father, we ask that you would be pleased to strengthen us internally through your spirit this morning, that we might be able to perceive something of the dimensions of Christ's love for us. Help us this morning as we meditate on the love of our Savior to not just understand it with our minds, but to rejoice in it from the very depth of our being. Father, we pray that you would be pleased through your spirit this morning to enliven us, to make us receptive to your word. Father, you know the needs of every single soul in this place this morning, and we pray that your word would speak to each and every heart, and that your good purposes for every person here would be accomplished through the proclamation of your word, for your glory and their eternal good. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when a, when a parent picks up their small child, uh, picks them up, hugs them, gives them a kiss, and says, I love you, more often than not, when they put that child back down on the ground, that kid bolts, runs in one direction or another. And it's not that they're in a hurry to get somewhere. It's that they have been energized by this expression of parental love. They're so loved, they don't know what to do except to run. Uh, you know what I mean if you've got kids, right? They just bolt for no good reason. Uh, love has the effect of energizing us, of transforming us, of propelling us forward. And as much as that's true at the human level, as wonderful as parental love is, uh, the love of Jesus Christ is greater still. The love of Jesus propels us forward and it transforms us, and it is the theme of our passage this morning. It's the very heart of what Paul prays for the Ephesians. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Ephesians this morning, and we're going to note three things. First, we will note his attitude in prayer, Paul's attitude in prayer. Second, we're going to look at Paul's request, what he requests of God on behalf of the Ephesians. And third, we're going to look at Paul's praise of God. And roughly, this, these correspond to the introduction of the prayer, the body of the prayer, 
and the conclusion of the prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Uh, It's worth noting that the typical prayer posture in the first century among the Jews was to stand. We see this in the parable of the uh, tax collector. Uh, He is standing when he's praying to the Lord. This seems to have been the normal posture for the pious Jew in prayer. Uh, Intriguingly here, Paul bows his knees before the Father. Are there instances of this in Scripture when there's a when someone comes before the Lord with a, with a particularly urgent request, they, they are particularly fervent in their petition, they will bow in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our, our Lord is prostrated before the Father. Uh, so there are instances of this, but typically people would stand. Now, we should note, the Bible doesn't tell us how we should sit or stand or bow or whatever when we pray. There's no, God tells us when we pray, we need to have this bodily posture. So we don't want to overstate the importance of bodily posture, but neither do we want to completely understate its importance. Uh, Not least because, C.S. Lewis notes, the body ought to pray as well as the soul. Body and soul are both better for it. God has, after all, in his wisdom made us spirit and body, has he not? And body has some place, not the place of greatest importance, but some place in prayer. Uh, At a minimum, we should recognize that the position of our body affects our mental uh, awareness, awakeness, um, the, a perennial temptation in prayer isn't, is that our minds wander, isn't it? You sit down to pray, you want to seek the Lord, and man, it's hard to focus. You have to pull yourself back again and again. Well, obviously, you're not doing yourself any favors if you're lying down in bed when you pray, right? That bodily posture will make it less likely that you can be attentive. Uh, sitting up, bowing your knees, all those things are helpful. In addition, I, I would add, just from my own experience in, in this matter, uh, praying out loud is very helpful to me, partly, I think, because of my upbringing. I think that's one reason. But I, I, I concentrate best by vocalizing. I need to talk out loud. Not always too loud, depending on what I'm praying about, uh, but I need to speak out loud. And while admittedly it creates some awkward moments from time to time as I turn a corner while praying and bump into one of my children, uh, still it's too indispensable. Praying out loud helps me to concentrate, to focus. It may be helpful to you. Maybe you're wired like me. Maybe you think by talking. Some people are wired that way. If so, that could be helpful. Some people journal. Not found that that helpful in my experience, but some people find it very helpful to journal their prayers. Uh, walking while praying is a helpful way to be attentive. So what, what, however God has wired you, do what enables you to be attentive. Um, I would add also that our bodily posture, our bodily position, often reflects our attitudes. So if you sit down for lunch with someone and you want to show them that you are interested in them and what they have to say, you don't lean back and slouch. You lean forward, you know, your eyes are open, you're attentive to every word. That's a way of communicating what you say matters. So our posture should respe- reflect a certain reverence and humility before the Lord. Now, this is expressed in a variety of ways. This can be expressed through bowing our knees. This could be expressed through standing, bowing our head, closing our eyes, whatever it is. There's no one right way to do it. But our bodies should reflect the posture of our heart. And that really is a first importance. What really matters is not that we bow our knees, but that we bow our hearts before the Lord. Uh, a bowed knee reflects humility, dependence upon God and a sense of his greatness. And that's where our hearts should be when we come to the Lord. A sense that we are creatures and he's our creator. In prayer, we stand before our maker. In prayer, we who are limited, finite, stand before the infinite. In prayer, we who are temporary and passing, stand before the eternal. And when we recognize just who it is that we are speaking to, 
the response should be a profound reverence for God. And this reverence grows out of a recognition for who he is. And we see that in verse 15. Paul bows his knees before the Father and then addresses the Father as the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The thought here is not simply that God labels different groupings of angels in heaven or different groupings of people on earth. In Scripture, naming often reflects the authority of one person over another. So when Adam, for, for instance, names all of the animals, he's not just labeling them, but he's exercising authority over the animals. And that, that's the, the idea here, that God is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth. He has authority over everything. He fashions everything according to his purposes, and everything is finally accountable to him. We see a, a parallel to this idea in Psalm 147, verse 4, where the psalmist says, Speaking of God, he determines the number of the stars. He gives them all, he gives to all of them their names. The idea isn't simply that God labels the stars, but that he makes them, rules over them. They accomplish his purposes. And so when Paul begins this prayer, he doesn't just leap into his petitions, which we're tempted to do. Like, Lord, help me with this today. I need strength. Help me with this and that. Uh, Before he leaps into the petitions, he first pauses to consider the one to whom he prays. And he is praying to Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, the, the giver of life, the Lord of life. And when, and when we recognize that, we, we pause and we are made aware of the weightiness of what we're doing when we pray. We shouldn't just, like a car with defective brakes, plunge off the cliff, go straight to our petitions, Uh, We should pause and consider the one to whom we are praying. When we pray, we are entering into the throne room of the maker of heaven and earth. And there should be a sense of awe. There should be a sense of reverence. I think if we started there, it would help us to pray better. How many times have you, you know, you're praying and halfway through your petition, you realize, should I even be praying that? Like, is that even in line with God's will? I'm not even sure. One benefit to starting with an awareness of God, to just, before you say anything, remembering what you're doing, you're coming into the presence of the Creator, uh, reflecting on that enables you to pray in a way that's more in line with His will. So if you're not accustomed to doing this, I just encourage you, when you sit down to pray, pause for a moment. Consider the one to whom you are speaking, that you're entering into the throne room of the King, and then pray accordingly. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Welsh preacher, 20th century, London, um, he makes this observation. He says, we tend to be so self-centered in our prayers that when we drop on our knees before God, we think only about ourselves and our troubles and perplexities. We start talking about them at once, and of course, nothing happens. According to our Lord's teaching, we should not expect anything to happen. That is not the way to approach God. We must pause before we speak in prayer. You recollect what you are about to do. Is that there in your prayer life? Is there a prayer life? Hope, and we're assuming, of course, that you are praying. This is a non-negotiable ingredient in the Christian life. But when you pray, don't just rush headlong into your petitions. Stop. You're addressing the Creator. Consider that. Begin with, uh, before maybe saying anything, begin with an address to God. Our Father in heaven. 
maker of heaven and earth. And then everything that is prayed is prayed within that frame of reference. Here, Paul balances the scales a little bit, his attitude here. In uh, chapter 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul tells us that we should approach God with confidence. Because our sins have been washed away through Jesus Christ, we have boldness and access before the Father. And that's right and that's good. But here he's showing us that God at the same time needs to be approached reverently with a profound sense of who he is. Our attitude in prayer should be one of reverent boldness. God is our Father, so we come confidently. God is creator and Lord, so we come reverently. That's the posture of our heart before the Lord when we pray. That's what it ought to be. So that's his attitude towards God as he prays. Second thing to note here is what he asks of God, his petition on behalf of the Ephesians. He prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul is asking God the Father that he would work through God the Holy Spirit in the very depths of their being to strengthen them, to fortify them. Uh, The remarkable implication of that is God doesn't leave his people to face life, the challenges of life with their own spiritual resources. God provides help from outside, supernatural power through God the Holy Spirit to strengthen us internally. For what purpose? Why does Paul pray that the Holy Spirit would strengthen them internally? Here's the purpose. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now we look at that and we go, what does that mean? Because he's addressing believers, right? They are already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They're, They're already therefore indwelt by Jesus. What does he mean when he prays that the Father would strengthen believers internally so that Christ would dwell in their hearts? Uh, It doesn't mean that they are not currently indwelt by Jesus and that Paul wants them to be indwelt by Jesus in response to the prayer. That is not what he means. All throughout this letter, we see that believers are, first of all, united with Christ. This, This has been a consistent theme in Ephesians, in Christ, in Christ. There is a spiritual union between Jesus and his people. They've been united to his death and resurrection, he says in chapter 2. Furthermore, Ephesians 1.13 says that believers have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells inside believers. And where the Holy Spirit is, there is Jesus also. Just like when we were in the Gospel of John uh, a few weeks ago, months ago, whatever it's been, um, there was a theme, right? Wherever Wherever the Son is, the Father is there. If you see the Son, you see the Father as well. You can't see the Son and not also see the Father. Well, the New Testament also teaches that where the Spirit is, there also is Christ. If you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then you are also indwelt by the, by the um, second person of the Godhead, by Jesus Christ, and you are also indwelt by the Father. Where you have one, you have all of the others. You can see this perhaps most clearly in Colossians one twenty-seven, where Paul writes, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, there you have it. So Christ is in you if you are a believer. Okay, so we've established that believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and therefore Christ. So Paul's prayer here is not that they would be indwelled because they're not. No, they are already indwelled. I think the thought here is that through the work of the Spirit inside of them, they perceive the reality of Christ's indwelling. They derive internal spiritual strength and comfort from the indwelling of Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, 
who strengthens their faith, they are able to spiritually perceive that Christ is indeed in them. They are able to see all that he is for them, and they are able to draw comfort and strength from that fact. Uh, fact. I think the, the first petition is paralleled by the second petition. Uh, you go to verse 18, and you have a, a petition that basically overlaps with that. Paul prays that they may have strength. Again, notice the parallel between the spirit strengthening. Verse 18, strength. He prays that they may have strength to comprehend, to understand with all the saints what are the dimensions of the love of Christ, how high it is, how low it is, how wide it is, how broad it is. The idea is that you can't get your arms around the love of Jesus because it's too massive. You can't conceive of the massive proportions of the love of Jesus Christ for you. He makes this explicit in verse 19 when he says, that he prays that they would have strength to know. This is not just like an intellectual knowledge. This is an awareness upon the heart of the love of Jesus Christ. He prays that they would know the love of Christ that can't be known, that surpasses knowledge. He prays that they would know the unknowable, and the unknowable here is just how deep and wide and great is the love of Jesus for his people and for you. Several things I want you to see here. Number one, Jesus loves you. It doesn't matter how, how well you understand that love, there is far more to his love than you've ever thought, is Paul's point. It doesn't matter how far you've come in understanding his love for you, there is more to his love than you have comprehended. Think about those moments in your walk with the Lord where you have uniquely and intensely felt the love of Jesus for you. Understand that you you weren't even scratching the surface at those moments. That his love goes deeper still, that it's wider than you could have ever thought. If the love of Jesus is an ocean, then no matter how deeply you have sunk in that ocean, you've never hit the bottom, nor will you. The love of the Lord goes deeper and deeper and is not comprehensible. We can understand it somewhat, but we can't understand its depth fully. Do you get that Jesus loves you like that? More than you could have ever hoped for. And furthermore, he loves you despite all of those wretched imperfections that you you and I are so keenly aware of. He loves you despite the inadequacies. He doesn't love you because in yourself you're that lovely and lovable. He loves you because he is good, not because you're this wonderful person. How do we look at the, look at the logic of this passage? I want you to see this clearly. So he, Paul prays, I want you to get his love. I want you to understand the love that Jesus has for you. Why? Verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now I'm going to unpack that phrase in more detail in a moment, but for now suffice it to say it's a reference to spiritual maturity becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more like God wants you to become. So we become more mature, more like Jesus, by understanding how much he loves us. Consider what that means. That means he loves you, deeply loves you, when you're not yet mature. He loves you that you would become mature, but you're not yet mature. Even when you're foolish and struggling and sinful and wretched and inadequate, Jesus loves you. 
and his love makes you mature. I want you guys to get this, because I think more often than not, we have it exactly backward. I am maturing, I'm becoming more like Jesus, I'm becoming stronger, maybe more obedient, more loving, whatever, and so he surely must love me more. Right? He loves me because of my maturity. This says the exact opposite. He loves me when I'm messed up, make poor choices, struggling. He loves me then that I might become mature, which means his love for me is not finally grounded in how great of a person I am or how well I'm doing. It's grounded in his large and generous heart and his goodness. That's amazing. It's not like Jesus at some point is going to become disillusioned with you. Like he doesn't know how wretched you really are. He's going to find out about it and bolt the way some people do. Ooh, I had no idea it was so bad. See you later, right? Jesus has, Jesus has no illusions about us. Like all of us are engaged in this game of, of giving other people a very carefully edited version of ourselves. Uh, we want them to perceive us a certain way, and so we're very conscious of the way that we position ourselves. You know what I'm talking about. You do it all the time. Uh, right? we, we want people to know we're wiser, cleverer, and more loving than we really are. And so we position, we're, we're always positioning ourselves vis-a-vis others to give them this impression. And we cringe at the thought that they would see what's underneath. The outbursts of anger, the foolish overspending, the marital strains, we cringe that other eyes would see us at that level. But here's the amazing truth about this passage. Jesus sees you at that level. He knows you through and through. And what's his response? He wraps his arms around you in love. In the midst of that brokenness and inadequacy and weakness. That's a tremendous comfort to us when we, when we are painfully aware of how inadequate we are how weak we are, how frail we are. In the midst of that, we need to remember Jesus loves you. Not because you're doing well or mature, but even in that mess, he loves you, that you might become mature. Meditate on that. Second thing to notice here, it's important for believers to understand subjectively and internally that God loves them. It's one thing to say, God loves me objectively and truly, right? Uh, And he does. But Paul is saying something more than merely God loves them. He's, He's praying that they would get a sense upon the heart of that love, that they would have an internal appreciation of the objective love that God has for them. Like, Do you recognize that a crucial ingredient in your spiritual well-being is to know God's love for you? Sometimes we don't even think in those terms. Paul is saying for for them to flourish, for them to be encouraged, they have to know just how much Jesus loves them. And he prays for them to that end. Paul wouldn't be praying for them, Lord, give them strength through your Holy Spirit so they know how much they're loved, if this wasn't absolutely essential in the walk with Jesus Christ. Can you say... Not that you simply know intellectually, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a profound statement. Not just intellectually, but do you have a sense on your heart that Jesus is for you? That all his dealings with you are defined by love? How do we get a deeper sense on the heart of, of Christ's love? Well, number one, we do what Paul does, and namely pray for it. If it is indeed the Holy Spirit 
who opens our eyes and strengthens us internally so we can know the love of Jesus Christ, then we need to pray. If it's a supernatural gift, then prayer is the appropriate response. We need to say, Lord, give me the strength, open the eyes of my heart to see Jesus. And don't just do that for me, do that for my brothers and sisters. As we pray for one another, as Paul prays for the church, and as we pray that God would do that in our hearts, the Holy Spirit will. Secondly, we need to look at the love of Jesus Christ where it is manifest in the gospel, in his life. We need to see the love of Jesus Christ in his incarnation. The eternal son of God set aside his glory and the splendor that he had with the father. Christmas is around the corner, right? A few months away. We can start thinking about the incarnation. Uh, The son, the eternal son, sets aside his glory and his privileges as the eternal son. And he comes down into the muck and the mess. He embraces the limitations of being a human being. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's a reference to the incarnation. Throughout his life, Jesus endures hostility of evil men as he does the will of God. He is ridiculed and shamed, and there is unrelenting opposition for us. And at the cross, Jesus not only endures the shame and pain of crucifixion, he endures the agony of divine judgment for the sins that we deserve. At the, cro- at the cross, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken and his blood was shed as punishment for our sins. Jesus saw the judgment that we des- deserved and he said, Father, don't let it fall on them. Let it fall on me. And on the other side of his death, when the Father raised the Son from the dead, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven where he dwells in glory. And in glory, Jesus hasn't forgotten about his people. But but according to the letter to the Hebrews, even in heaven, Jesus continues to carry us on his heart, or in his heart, and to intercede with the Father for us. If you want to know the love of Jesus Christ, look at him. Reflect on his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his intercession. Look at the way scripture on every page speaks to us about the love of Jesus. That's where you go to see his love. Third thing. I alluded to this already, but I really want to underscore this point. Paul says, I'm praying so you know the love that Jesus has for you, so that, here's the purpose, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does he mean by that? Well, first thing to note, uh, the phrase filled with can, and in this case should be, translated filled to. The underlying word in the Greek is legitimately and rightly translated to in this instance. Um, It's the net Bible that captures it well. So that you will be filled, so that you will be filled up to all the fullness of God filled up to the point of God's fullness. And then we go, what do you mean, Paul? What is that? What are you getting at? So pray that we would know the love of Christ so that we would be filled to the fullness of God. What does that mean? Uh, We need to look at chapter 4, verse 13, because that provides a clarifying explanation. There he writes, speaking of believers growing Listen carefully, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
There the idea is that you become more and more like Jesus. You become more and more mature. You become more and more what God wants you to be. And that's the thought in our passage. To, to be filled to the fullness of God is to become increasingly what God wants you to be. Is to become increasingly like Jesus until you are perfected. All right, spiritual maturity is in view. But here's the interesting thing. Notice the linkage between, between these two ideas. I want you to know the love of Jesus so you can mature. Maybe I can capture it this way. If a new believer came to you and sat down with you and said, hey, I want to mature and become more like Jesus, what would you say? So I assume you'd say something like, well, you should pray and go to church and read scripture. Those are good answers. Seek to do what's right and turn from wickedness. Those are good answers. But how many of you would say, oh, you want to grow? Well, if you want to grow, then you need to understand just how much Jesus loves you. But that's precisely what Paul is suggesting here. That if we're going to make real progress in our walk with the Lord, it's going to happen as we internalize how much he loves us. Knowing Jesus loves you, having that sense on the heart, is not like a, a luxury, extra, optional, spiritual good. It is absolutely essential for growth. How do I become more like Jesus? Know how much he loves you, is Paul's answer. But how profound that is. Now, I know that perhaps there are some of you who don't necessarily like that answer, especially men. Just tell me what to do. <laughs> right? I've had this All right, I get, I know the love, know that Jesus loves me more. Okay, all right, it's hopelessly vague. Just, just tell me what to do to fix my marriage. Um, I, I get it. Be patient. Uh, if that's you, two thoughts come to mind, okay? Actually came to mind as I was preparing. Um, number one, this is God's word. Trust that he knows better than you do what you need. It doesn't fit with your intuitions? Okay. You're not the standard of all things. He is. If God tells you you need to know the love of Jesus for you, trust that you need to know the love of Jesus. Just lean into that. But second thing, I would also point out that doing, certain kinds of doing, can't happen without you becoming a certain kind of person. Doing proceeds from being, right? If we're a certain kind of person, we're going to do certain things. So for instance, I can tell you, here's what I want you to do. When your wife speaks disrespectfully to you, I want you to be patient and not lose your temper. Do that. Great. Concrete advice, I know what to do now. I can go home and when there's disrespect, I'm going to be calm and patient. I know what God's will is. You might get it, you might, Monday, you might succeed. The, the afterglow of Sunday is still there. The, the healing uh, breeze of Sunday is still, still moving through your life. But Friday comes around, you're exhausted, uh, and it doesn't go, work out so well. You, you lash out at your wife. Okay, Lord, forgive me. And then you try harder. Then it happens again. You try harder, and it happens again. You go, I can't. Good. Now we can, now we can start talking. What, you can't do? No? Okay. What has to happen? You have to, you have to become a different kind of man. You have to be transformed by the love of Jesus Christ so that you start learning how to love your wife. You have to be softened by his love. Understand how much love you have been given, how the Father and the Son have loved you so that you could be a patient husband. To do, you have to become. You have to be transformed by the love of Jesus so you can start showing love to other people. You can't do without becoming, and you can't become without seeing the love of Christ. 
I hope I persuaded you. If not, we can talk after. Above all, never mind my exhortations, above all, it's the word of God and therefore reliable. And finally, before moving on, let me note this as well. It's really important. It's not just that this is how we grow as individuals. This is how we help other people grow. If your parents, God has called you to help your children grow and mature. How do you do that? One essential part of that, helping them see that Jesus loves them. It's not just rules and regulations. We want them to understand Christ loves you. Wives, how do you help your husbands at the end of a hard day when they are just maxed out and frustrated and feel keenly their inadequacies? At that point, they don't need all sorts of nuance necessarily. What they need to hear is that Jesus loves you. Having been on the recipient of that kind of counsel, I have to say it works and it's encouraging. Husbands, remind your wives that in the midst of their frustrations, Jesus loves them. And those of you who are seeking at CBC to help other people follow Jesus, what do you need to do as you're helping them grow? Help them see the love of Christ. It's like a diamond, right, with multifaceted. You hold it up to the light and you show them the different facets of Christ's love for them. And you pray that the Holy Spirit would apply that to their heart. And as that happens, growth happens. So if you're eager to help people grow, become more like Jesus, this is at the heart of it. Help them to know the love of Christ. Start by praying for them. Third thing then, Paul concludes his prayer. And indeed, this is the conclusion to the whole first section of Ephesians with a word of praise. From this point forward, we're going to leave behind roughly speaking, the doctrinal portion of the letter, and we're going to focus more on the practical aspects, the commands that we have in terms of being faithful to the Lord Jesus. That begins in chapter 4. So he concludes this first, he concludes his prayer, but also the whole first section with this expression of praise and adoration for God. And notice how he refers to God in verse 20. This is the God who he praises. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. This is one of those verses that has a unique resonance in my heart. He's already told us, you can't comprehend how much Jesus loves you. It's deeper and wider. Here, Paul is saying, you can't comprehend how powerful God is and how amazing are his responses to prayer. In your wildest dreams, you can't conceive of what God can do. Notice how these two ideas intersect. In God, we have one who perfectly loves us and has all the power in the universe to do as he pleases. He both wills to answer our prayers and is able to answer our prayers. So when we approach, we approach rever reverently but with confidence and expectation that he's for us. One of my favorite places in Scripture where we see the discrepancy between God's awesome power and the low expectations that his people have of him is in Acts chapter 12. In Acts 12, we're told that the apostle Peter is imprisoned by Herod. Uh, this is a big deal. Peter is a key leader in the early church, and so what does the church do? It gathers to pray. And in response to that prayer, the angel of the Lord comes into Peter's cell at night, rouses him from his sleep, the chains fall off, he says, come with me. And he opens the door, and eventually he makes his way into the city, and then the angel disappears. And at that point, Peter realizes, this is not a dream. I'm free. 
And so he goes to Mary's house where the church is having a prayer meeting. And I suspect, what is the church praying for in that context? They're praying for Peter's release. So he knocks on the door. It's Peter. Rhoda, the servant girl, goes to the door, and she can't believe it, it's Peter. And in her amazement, she doesn't think to open the door. So she runs back to the prayer meeting, and she says, he's here. And having a deep faith in God, their response is, we knew it. Praise God. This is, this is what we expected. This is what has happened. No, that's not how the story goes. What they actually said, what they actually said, Acts 12, 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. These are not empiricists. These are rationalists. I don't know if that distinction... Uh, empiricists are people who take the magnifying glass and look at the details. They want the facts, right? Why don't they just go to the door? No, they're, they're armchair philosophers. They speculate. Could it be his angel? Anyway, what you see, what is astonishing in this passage, is that God acted in a way that exceeded their wildest expectations. They were praying for Peter to get out of prison, but like us, they weren't necessarily expecting it to happen. And when it did happen, they were shocked. That says more about God than it does them, and it says that he answers our prayers far more abundantly than we can ask or think. Ask big things of God and expect that he delights in answering prayers. John Newton writes in one of his hymns, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Are you dishonoring God with your low expectations, small prayers, prayers that you think are manageable for God to handle? Or are you coming to him with a sense of, he's he's the Lord. He's all-powerful. He's the maker of heaven and earth, and he loves me perfectly. So I'm going to ask big things of God and expect that he'll answer, especially as those big prayers are are in line with his will for his people, with his kingdom priorities. We should expect things from God more often than we do. Paul concludes this appropriately with praise. As I said, this this concluding doxology, expression of adoration, is not simply the end of his prayer, but the whole letter up to this point. As Paul has surveyed the goodness of God in all of its richness, how he has claimed us as part of his family, how he's washed us of our sins through Jesus, how he's brought us together as Jew and, and Gentile into one body, how we are a temple of God, uh, as he has considered how deeply Jesus Christ loves his people with a, with a love that can't be comprehended, having surveyed all of that, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. When we see the mercies of God and the lavish love of our Savior Jesus Christ, the response should be praise and adoration. Like that child whose heart wells up when their parent picks them up and kisses them, and they have, to, they have to run or they'll explode. In a similar way, when we experience the love of Jesus Christ, there is nothing for it but to praise Him. Our hearts overflow in adoration when we perceive that love. So amazed by His goodness and mercy, let us sing His praises with full hearts. Let us adore Him with everything that is in us. Let that be the prevailing note of our lives. Amen. Let's pray together.
Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to glimpse a little bit more of how great, of how high, of how low and broad your love is. And in glimpsing, find relief for our troubled hearts and strength to live for you more and more. Jesus, please make it plain to us how much you love us and grant us to see more and more fruit in our lives and in our church as we behold this reality. Holy Spirit, please don't let these truths pass through us and disappear. We pray, Holy Spirit, that the word that the living Christ gave to his people today would endure with us forever and ever. Amen.